0: This is Startups A to Z. I'm Hillary Hirsch.
1: And I'm Mark Schoen. Hillary and I are here to share conversations all about the Arizona startup community. So, Hillary, uh, this is the very first episode of the Startups A to Z podcast.
0: Yes, it is.
1: I'm a big fan of podcasts, something that um, I listen to often. Uh, I, I think it's also a big trend that is um, happening among people our age. We're both 20 somethings, and I, I think it's useful for us to have these sorts of interviews and conversations about different topics that um, are important to Arizona entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah. And you know, about a year ago, I remember you coming up to me and telling me about this podcast that you were starting. And I too am a huge fan of podcasts. I just love it. And, you know, ever since then, I've been thinking about why is it that I like podcasts so much? And I Really think it comes down to the fact that it's all about experience and you really dive into problems and people and a lot of really complex issues that typically you don't really get to hear at, you know, a panel discussion or a speaker because those are one time discussions and then they're gone. But the thing I love about podcasts is that it's captured and you can go back and you can listen to it. And it's uh, kind of like it's it's its own timestamp. Yeah, so. yeah. We
1: can take our time with it and mm-hmm. uh, and, and be casual about it and and not uh, not worry about having to perform for an audience or, or stick to very strict timelines or, or other sorts of constraints.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, so on to the show. Our guest Jim has had a very dynamic life, if you will, since 2010. Jim has been the Managing Director of Arizona Tech Investors, an angel investor group based in Phoenix, focused on investing in early-stage technology companies with a portfolio of over 30 companies. Uh, Jim has been the past CEO of numerous software companies, one of which he had the pleasure of meeting the infamous Steve Jobs.
2: Hi, Hillary. (laughs) Hi, Mark. Glad to be here. This should be fun.
0: Thanks. We're happy to have you, too. The topic for today is valuation of companies in Arizona, raising money from investors. Jim, what inspired you to pick this as your topic?
2: It's the single most important element in making an investment decision in anything. And I maybe mean, even go to the very simple kinds of things. Everybody makes valuation decisions on everything they buy. You wouldn't pay $75,000 for a Chevy it doesn't have the right value proposition. On the other hand, if, if you could pick up a Mercedes-Benz for $25,000, you'd ask, what's wrong with it? Again, the value proposition doesn't seem right. You, know, you make a judgment when you go into the store. Do you buy groceries at a price that's offered? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, based upon what you think. The right price is for something. And ultimately, value or valuation is in the eye of the beholder. And in the process... The people that have an idea, entrepreneurs, have to go through a complicated thing called building a business, which means involving other people who bring their resources to bear to build that business. And at some point, some money is required because not everybody can volunteer their time forever. And so finding those people that have capital that they're willing to invest in a business becomes necessary. And then you get into this dance between investors and entrepreneurs. And some people think it's always a zero-sum game. If it's good for one side, it's got to be bad for the other. And we have a lot of that going on in Phoenix. It's from inexperience. Ultimately, this is you know, it's the old saw about businesses. Business is a team sport. It's not an individual one. You need a lot of different people, some of whom do technology, some of whom do sales, some do marketing, some do analysis, some do competitor analysis, some provide money, some people count things up. All those kinds of skills are necessary to turn an idea into a business. And those people that have capital to contribute are one of those partners. So we're really not the enemy, but there are a lot of people that want to demonize investors as they're just a bunch of greedy blank blankety blanks because that's what they do. Or, and here we have in Phoenix, I'm astounded at how many people think this way, that it's a bunch of people with bags of cash sitting on the table with a dollar sign on the outside. I'm looking for places to put my money. Line up, and I'll give you some. It's important for people to understand
1: that um, angel investors are different from maybe more traditional types of uh, people who work with the stock market or whatever else and that uh, they do want to get involved with the companies themselves to uh, try to increase their return and to just improve the odds of success for uh, the companies that they're putting their money in. And um, so you you mentioned that a big part of the valuation of of any company uh, is a determination of that risk that's involved. Um, that in that risk is independent of any other the sorts of things involved with the market opportunity or, um, or you know, the the product development cycle, things like that. Uh, so let me ask you this how many uh, companies have you personally invested in as an angel?
2: About 25.
1: Okay. And of those 25, how many, um, Involved you becoming like a C level executive, you know, one of the main members of the team? Any of that? About,
2: I've done that probably five times, and
1: I've been on the board of another five or six. With those examples, um, I mean, you've invested in 25, but have only gotten more directly involved in between five or 10. So, what made you decide, or what are some of the sorts of general metrics that make you decide to? jump in and invest time and money versus just maybe money
2: by itself i think for most people it starts with do you really like a business and the second part of that is can you really add a lot to that business so you may like it but i mean i've invested in a bunch of business i think they're really cool but i don't know much i, I can't add much to them uh, I can be an, an enthusiast, and sometimes I'll find ways to be helpful, such as making introductions to people that might be valuable to the business, whether it's for hiring a person or opening a door to a potential customer or a, a way to validate a technology, uh, anything like that. Uh, the active involvement is when you, you just you it's the one that floats your boat. Does that valuation ever
1: take a hit if part of the investment includes the time that people are going to
2: devote uh, among that investor team? You start with uh, a couple of thoughts. The first is that there are always lots of options in which to invest. That's another thing that a lot of entrepreneurs, if, if they, they don't even think about for the most part. And when you, when you say options,
1: you, uh, can you explain
2: a bit more about that? Sure. We are right now diligencing three companies, and we've done investments this year in our group of maybe eight. It's been a very active year for us. I've personally chosen to invest in a couple of them, and those are the ones that we've invested in. That doesn't include the dozens of companies that we looked at. look at. So we have lots of places to consider putting our money. So it's, in a sense, like being a teenager and starting to date. You know, there are lots of other people around if the first person you ask on a date doesn't want to go out with you. So there's, it's always there are choices. And that yeah.
1: arise out of Arizona. These aren't yes. people coming from outside the state. These are born out of, out of the community
2: yeah, here. absolutely. Uh, the ones that we're diligent right now, they're all Arizona-bred companies. So there are choices to be made. That means you have to figure out if you have a limited amount of money or a limited amount of time. Where do you deploy it? Because if you put it, you know, are these companies are startups, so you can't, like you know, if you invest in Apple stock, you can put your money into Apple now, and you can get it back now. That's liquidity, that's the markets. You put your money into a startup, and you hope to get your money back sometime in the next three to five years. So you can't undo your investment, which means that the money, you know, there's an opportunity cost of choosing A over B. So you want to be careful about it. And that's when the comparisons start to happen. If I look at an interesting business, but I don't think that I can make the kind of return that I th- want to have, and I turn five degrees and I can see another company that I can I like a lot, and I can, I think, get that return, it says, why would I choose A when B looks better? That's the first thing. The second on time is... It's a different dynamic, but ultimately is the same. I mean, we all are living, you know, using up our time on Earth. So every moment becomes more and more valuable because it's scarcer and scarcer. So we do diligence on those things that we think are worth doing diligence on. Spend the time if you think the economic returns are there, and you can figure that out in a reasonable period of time.
0: So, Jim, one of the things that I've heard a lot when working with entrepreneurs in Arizona is that there's no funding. But what I just heard from you is that there is money out there, but there's also a lot of inexperience with our entrepreneurs. We just have not had the right conducive environment to train and teach our startups. A lot of them are on their first ventures. So when it comes to the valuation of a business, say in Arizona versus Silicon Valley, Is there a different perception when it comes to the location of a business?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's lots and lots of data now to support that. So we'll talk about whether there's money in Arizona in a second. But let's talk about fundamental geography. The difference between Silicon Valley and every other place is the density of both entrepreneurs and investors. There are lots of both. What happens is the velocity of information is at light speed there. There's a conversation between an entrepreneur and an investor. The result of that is spread around in almost perfect virality instantaneously. You go to a coffee shop and everyone's going to hear about your experience. Here we don't have that. It's hit or miss as to whether people get that learning. And there is a presumption in Silicon Valley that with the, the range of variation among investors talking to entrepreneurs is, is not all that great, be, partly because the investors are so competitive. It's especially the case in the VC world where people are desperate to put their money to work. So you get a lot of herd mentality there, and things get priced up. Here we have none of those conditions. And so with less competition... which really means there's less supply, but the demand relative to the supply maybe is great, says that prices should go down. So valuations should be less here than they are in in Silicon Valley. And there's data that's been collected by the Angel uh, Capital Association from angel groups all around the country now over the years, and there is a distinction between valuations among whether it's software companies or life science companies in Silicon Valley and everywhere else. And everywhere else includes us. It includes uh, Atlanta. It includes Austin. It includes Chicago. New York and Boston can approach Silicon Valley prices. But everybody else, it's a discount. But a lot of people here don't expect that. And so we see what we consider to be nutty valuations and they get in the way of doing deals. Uh, And we're going to undertake some process of trying to share the data that we're seeing with a lot more of the community so people can really understand that what may go for $4 million pre-money in Silicon Valley is a $3 million company here, or a $3 million company, not a $10 million company like we see an awful lot of.
0: Wow. So what you're saying is that supply and demand principles apply to the valuation of startups. It's incredible.
2: Absolutely.
1: And I would also imagine that part of the reason that that herd mentality might exist a bit and that it creeps up the valuations accordingly, uh, do you think that's because that there is a perception that it's less risky to invest in companies that are located in these areas with high density?
2: Well, it's if, if you're looking at the top 1%, and you have 50 to choose from, or you have 500 to choose from, chances are you're going to see more of those top 1%ers in the bigger population. So you start with that. The the, draw, the real drive for valuations in, in Silicon Valley is is VC-based, and that's That's where VC funds are managing money for their limited partners who are looking for returns, so they're very competitive because if they don't get the kind of returns they're looking for, they're not going to be able to raise another fund and pay themselves the millions of dollars that 35-year-old VCs can be paid. So there's a scurrying around. So any deal that starts to look good, they don't want to miss out on. And so you get this kind of frenzy that happens, and we're seeing it right now you know, with the unicorns in, in Silicon Valley. And, you know, it comes and it goes. But nonetheless, there's that kind of... It's a competition derived from a different kind of impulse. The, the VCs are acting differently from angels. So, uh, you know, we could, we take a little bit different perspective. Okay.
1: And with that different perspective in mind... Um, So you have ATI, and you have your quarterly meetings. You have companies come in that you select through your um, your selection portal. Um, And you you mentioned that uh, at least some of them come in with nutty valuations that might come from what they see to our our neighbors uh, to the west here. And uh, you said that that can cause some issues with deals. Uh, So how do you manage those expectations for founders coming in who are pitching for money that? Um, might not like what they uh, the feedback that they receive from your investors in terms of what they think the, the business is worth
2: well there's a part of it is there's the general education that needs to go on and on and on and on so I talk about this with some frequency as do others uh, and the negotiation can sometimes be calm and reasonable other times it gets a little heated because people don't don't think about it in these ways I, my idea is so good it's got to be worth it 10 million dollars. So uh, let me give you an easy example. The hardest money to raise is the first money. That's generally what we do. So we're taking the biggest risk. So let's say a company. So let's say we invest in a company at a 10 million dollar valuation. And then it's time to raise another round. And the new investor comes in with a great big pot of money but says your company's worth $8 million. Who gets harmed? You do. The founders but- do too, but mostly we do because we put most of the money into it already. So we're looking at taking the most risk and t- then taking the most risk on, on the consequence. Bad for everybody. And so we think about this. you know, While most, particularly in the software space, companies come in to us and say, I need to raise a million dollars. And if I get a million dollars in two years, we'll be cash flow positive and never, ever have to raise any more money. Sometimes that happens. Usually when it does, the company's not growing very much, but if the company's growing fast and they need to hire a lot of people or they need to revamp their technology or whatever, uh, in the internet of things, you have to build a lot more stuff. I mean, Mark, you know about the cost of building stuff. Uh, you have to raise a whole lot more money. You have to pay attention to what the subsequent investors want. And so we think about it in that sort of context that's what does it mean when another round comes in? And are we seeing an uptick in value or are we going to see a downward move? We we want to protect ourselves from a downward move.
1: So is the general education that you speak of, I mean – well, it's it's not like there's necessarily classes you can sign up for at AFC or something that teaches you about these sorts of things. So, what are the ways that um, you spread the word about these sorts of considerations to entrepreneurs? Besides, of course, being on this podcast.
2: Well, this is such an important part of it that this will reach thousands and thousands of people. But beyond that, we actually do put on courses. We've done it now three times. There's a, the the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. Uh, is in uh, Kansas City, it was started by a guy that started Marion Labs 50 years ago, and he created this foundation to focus on entrepreneurship, It's been around for a while, and they actually commissioned the writing of a bunch of workshops, one of which is on valuing early stage companies. And we've brought a professor, the person who wrote it and gives these things all around the world, we brought him into town three times and made it available to our members and to entrepreneurs. And I'm dismayed at how few entrepreneurs have taken advantage of these sessions because it's real insight derived from thousands and thousands of angel deals. The guy that leads it has invested himself, I think, and he's at 80 companies, so he's a very experienced guy. And this is really to talk about how people think about things so we can get to the right kind of place because at the end of the day, you have to remember that having, from an entrepreneur's perspective, getting the money is worth a lot more than a higher valuation that doesn't get you the money.
1: Yeah, because ultimately, valuation doesn't really mean anything in terms of uh, being an indicator of success or failure for business. That's revenue. you yep. got to make money yep. from customers. And still, a lot of education has to come from the time when you're sitting across from mm-hmm. the table of the founding team and explaining why you have set the terms that you have. So uh, give us some insight into the way that those conversations happen. And I mean, how do you diffuse some of that tension that might
2: result? We're talking about uh, the discussions that we have when somebody says their company is worth $10 million and we think it's worth four. So if there's that big a variation, we try to get to that early on. Because there, there will always be a, a, a fine negotiation. So if the founders said they think their company's worth five and we said four, that's an e- it's a relatively easy negotiation. It may not be end up at four and a half, but uh, nonetheless, you're within the ballpark of things. So you're really talking about seeing the world pretty much the same way. In part, that means the entrepreneurs understand how we're thinking. So when it's wildly different, we have to talk about sometimes why we look for the returns that we do. So entrepreneurs understand that. And sometimes that's a shock because we're looking for returns between 50 and 80% per annum when we make an investment. And that's a shocker when people think they can get a mortgage for 4%. Why are we looking for 20 times that? And the answer is actually very simple. We I will be at a board meeting in the next couple of weeks where we will decide to shut the business down. Everybody will lose just about 100% of the money they put into it. These are hundreds of thousands of dollars. Some businesses, even after you do all your analysis and you have a very good management team, fail. That's the nature of things. And you can't tell which ones in your portfolio are going to fail. So you have to... Assume that you're going to get your returns from one or two out of your portfolio. And in order to get your the average return, which is, you're looking for is about between 25 and 30%, you need to have a high return in each deal in order to have those few that succeed give you the return. Sorry to be kind of belaboring it, but it's really important because what ends up here is that if we make that kind of return, the entrepreneurs are going to make enormously more. But sometimes you have to walk through that process with them, and sometimes we—I've been to meetings where entrepreneurs are think that we're immoral for the kinds of returns we're looking for. They think that for their opportunities, we should be happy with five percent a year. Those conversations typically go nowhere. There are others where it's a discussion about the greed of the entrepreneur. Those can be sometimes amusing. And there are others where it's like, okay, let's get down to cases and what, you know, where are the weak points of your projections and how do we deal with those, and, and we come to terms.
1: Does anyone ever come to you after pitching and you get to the point of due diligence and all that and maybe the valuations aren't what they quite wanted? Does anyone ever say, Oh, well, um, I can just go to Silicon Valley and raise at the numbers that I want to.
2: Sure. We've had that happen a bunch of times.
1: And what's the response?
2: Go for it. And in each case that I can recall, they've not raised the funding. And so the businesses have gone nowhere. And sometimes, in, in, in those cases, we even say, we think your business, let's pick the numbers, $4 million somebody's told you it should be 10. Try it out. You can't get it, and you're willing to take four. Come on back to us because we told you we're interested at four. You know We're not being jerks about it. We think it's a good deal at four. We've got all these people lined up to write a check.
1: Yeah, I definitely, um, certainly early on with ARP source and coming straight out of college, I didn't know a thing. Um, first time even really doing anything business-related. It was all engineering stuff beforehand. I think I placed way too much of an emphasis early on on uh, the value of a high valuation for a business. It's almost the kind of thing where you tie it to your personal worth. It's like you're saying, oh, well, if my business is valued at that, so am I. Um, I. I mean, that's true in the strictly financial sense, perhaps, assuming you're fully invested in your company. But um, yeah, definitely, um, I've come to learn that. Yeah, valuation. Who cares? Because the only time that's ever going to play any role ever is if you sell your business right to someone else. Right. And um, a lot, the majority of businesses, I think, uh, aside from technology-based businesses, majority you're never really going to sell it. It's the whole point of gaining dividends from revenue you bring in and your profit. Um, and so, Jim, as an angel is your general expectation that you're going to be making all of your or the majority of your money from exits or do you
2: find yourself getting dividends from companies that you've invested in you can never make enough in dividends to make it worthwhile Uh, exits are really the answer and most exits are going to be the sale of a company to another enterprise there'll be the occasional ipo but uh you know for what we do it's you know The unicorn kinds of things where you have a billion-dollar valuation and and everybody makes just astronomical amounts of money. Those are nice. And there are some people that try to chase only those. But most businesses don't turn into that. Most businesses become part of a larger enterprise where the larger enterprise can use what they've acquired to make an even bigger enterprise. They can use their national or global sales forces to sell the product to yet other customer groups that a startup could never, ever... Reach, so it's it's a natural kind of thing to do, and that gives us our money back at a reasonable period of time to do another deal, and that kind of investing over and over and over is where the economic uh, uh, development really occurs in a community. So it's it's you know the Brad Janengas and Mario Martinez of the world who've done well who are now active investors in our community companies. They're not doing it just to be nice. They're doing it because they think they're going to do real well again. And they're going to be selective. It's a good thing.
0: So, Jim, a lot of our listeners might not know that you've been on the other side of the table with these discussions in the past. You at once were the CEO of a company called NetSelector, Mm -hmm. which you were selling to Apple. Mm -hmm. Can you provide some insight as to how Steve Jobs valued your company
2: Oh yeah that's actually very it's very straightforward so you have to get in the wayback machine go back to the 90s and you forget that uh, uh, in the la- latter part of the 90s families were first getting access to high-speed internet this was 56 K so the idea was that people were st- at homes were gonna, starting to have computers and use the net. You know, uh, the Netscape wars were pretty much over, but uh, nonetheless, th- it was pretty heady times. It's you know the internet bubble was going on, and moms and dads started to get concerned if they gave their kids access to the internet unsupervised. And the same thing happened in schools. That you know, how do you handle access for nine-year-olds? unless you have a teacher hovering over every kid's computer because they could either deliberately or inadvertently get to places that were inappropriate for them. That's the nicest way to say it. So we came up with a solution for that that was very elegant and very sophisticated at the time. And I got to the company, actually it started already, and it was selling software on a CD in a box at retail stores. I mean, people forget about that too, but I quickly decided that we needed to move to a then-sophisticated technology called Client Server and uh, putting the the, the CDs, uh, we ended up bundling with the very first iBooks, those clamshell thingies with the colors and all that that were starting to come out in 97, 98. So we were selling into the schools, which is our primary market, and Apple's a big partner or a big seller to schools. And we started this partnership up with them to put our security tools as a part of a bundle with the iBooks. And we we're growing very nicely. Uh, and we we're at that point angel, entirely angel backed. So uh, I figured it was time to ask Apple for a strategic investment of a million dollars so we could grow a little faster. So I called the guy that we deal with, who's still one, he's one of the top executives. at, at Apple today still, and said, I want to come out and talk about a strategic investment. Sure. So I went out to Cupertino to talk to him about this. And we had this nice conversation that was taking a long time. I couldn't understand why he was dragging this out. And then he looks at his watch. Oh, it's 11 o'clock. Let's go. Where are we going? We're going to see Steve. So we go over to the other building, go up to the boardroom on the top floor of the, this beautiful building. And the CFO was there, and about six or seven minutes later, Jobs walks in in a black T-shirt and black shorts and flip-flops and less hair than I have, which is not Hmm. very much, sits down, starts talking. And very quickly, he got to the point and said, i want to buy your company. I'm going to offer you this much. And so I looked at the CFO and said, that's a nice starting point. And Jobs says, no, this is not a starting point. This is how much I'm prepared to offer you. Why is that, Steve? Well, we're going to do what you do. It's going to take us a year, year and a half to develop what you have. I know it'll cost me so much in both lost opportunity and development time to do this. And so I'm offering you a little bit less than that so I can get you and get going. And it was a actually a very good number. Not as much as I thought we could build this business to into selling it on our own globally, but a very good price. And so I made some other reference to things, and he said, do you really want to have us as a competitor? So I said, well, I need to talk to my board. So in about a six-second conversation with my board, we took the deal because it was he was making a very simple make versus buy decision. That's what happens in a lot of software, particularly software, but lots and lots of technology sales to bigger companies. Even Procter & Gamble does that now. They look, you know, they see that people can come up with ideas, get them going. What they can't do is market them worldwide. These big companies have these great marketing engines, so it, it's a smart thing to do. And so I think our situation was a classic one uh, and one that I, I, I encourage a lot of entrepreneurs to... Seriously think about that you don't want to pass beyond a great opportunity if it's there. Now, you know, if they would offer a rock bottom price, that would have been different.
1: Well it's a great story, first of all. I wasn't really aware of it beforehand. Um what it makes me think of a little bit as you're describing it is um you're offered a price, really no room for budging. Did you feel any regret at taking it, or do you? Do, you, know, you said it was a six-second co- conversation with the board. Was everyone uh, totally in favor of it, or was there any sort of internal discussion about uh, whether it was worth trying to go it alone still or not?
2: Well, uh, the six-second conversation happened after I'd done my preparation for the board on this, and I on the plane ride back from Cupertino to Minneapolis, where the company was, uh, I thought about you know. What the, pro- what the opportunities were, what the probabilities to execute were, what it would cost us to execute, and what it would it mean to have a competitor of the nature of Apple. And the conclusion was that, yes, I thought we could make a bigger, significantly bigger business if we had a playing field that didn't have them in it. But an 800-pound gorilla like that tilted the playing field. So the right analysis was as they said in Star Wars. Let the Wookiee win. For
1: you personally, what motivates you with all the different investments you make and all the businesses that you found or are recruited to be part of? Like For me, I'm certainly passionate about water issues, and that's what Source is all about, is uh, trying to have, uh, create innovation within the water industry. Um, but at the same time, I, I def, you know, you made the point earlier that uh, we, o- we only have so much time that we can devote to things, so much energy, and that um, that time, investment should net you some amount of money and learning and relationships and things like that. Your passion for investing, I would imagine, is uh, driven by sort of that opportunity cost calculation of wanting to take something to the point where, you you know maximize the amount of money and in education that you can get out of it and move on that's certainly the way that i've uh, decided uh, treat to treat opportunities that come my way and uh, so talk a bit about your in the pers- you know the the metrics that you have internally as to picking the ways that you spend your time and your money when looking for the different investments that um, come your way and then how that ties into the
2: way that you value these various businesses I've had the good fortune of, of being the leader, CEO of a lot of organizations, including some nonprofits as well as for-profit businesses, some big ones, some little ones. I've been on the boards of even more of them, so I've seen how they all work. And I am absolutely convinced that I'm a problem solver to begin with. And to solve problems, you have to have create an environment where people choose a solution. You don't, you know, we're not a dictatorship you don't impose them and even in dictatorships people find ways to avoid them so people have to buy them it's called customers and so even if you're in a nonprofit if you can't get customers if you can't get people to buy your service your constituency is saying it's not worth much to them so i believe that you need to find things that are sufficiently economically rewarding in order to have this, to create the solutions or the solutions have to have those in order to be real solutions to the problems that you're trying to solve. So I'm one of those that finds some kinds of problems really interesting to to deal with. And so when I see an exciting, what I consider to be an exciting solution to a problem that I think is worth solving, that's when I start to invest my time and my economic resources. Uh, there's some pro- problems that I recognize are problems, but I just either can't f- comprehend the correct solution or I figure other people are a lot more interested in them than I. But I think you know, the, in the sort of fundamental, most abstract kind of way, economics matters. If if you can't get customers for your solution, you don't have much of one.
1: What are some of those problems that you particularly have a passion for addressing? Because certainly any audience members who yeah. have businesses who want to start businesses around any given problem, yeah, it's good to know what the investors that you're pitching to have personal interest in. So what are some of those for you? Yeah, I,
2: I'm interested in in things that have some meaningful economic, uh, social benefit, I think, I'd, I'd say. So I look at things where we have huge waste, and if we can solve waste problems so that things are made significantly more efficient, not on a trivial scale, but on a large one, that's important, But, you know, I, I ameliorate the large because, you know, you can get into things like solar power and alternative energy and all that, and there's no way you can do those kinds of things you know, with small checks. Uh, but there are plenty of businesses around. I mean, look at Amazon as a good example. It has radically changed, made much more efficient the distribution of all kinds of goods. Uh, I think, you know, just Internet publishing has done the same thing for that, but very disruptive. So those kinds of businesses excite me. I think the opportunities now to do, provide health care in a much more efficient way, in ways that somebody who's not a doc can understand devices and the use of uh, uh, IT uh, to improve people's lives. Those, those kinds of things really turn me on. You know, To, to give you a, a better experience going to the movies doesn't do anything for me. Um, Then let's go back to, uh, is there money in Arizona, which uh, we raised earlier on. I've gone on record in a bunch of places to say that is the wrong issue. It's the complaint of people who aren't getting funded. We've now invested in 40 companies, 35 of which are in Arizona. Most of our investments are in Arizona. Uh, Our counterparts in Tucson are at least as active as we are. That's the Desert Angels. That's the Desert Angels. And we we collaborate together a lot. So we're investing a lot in Arizona. We've done a couple of deals with the one VC fund that's here, Greyhawk. So we've put together some deals that are pretty good-sized. It's not that there's no money here. It's that we're picky, we're picky because we, we're looking for a certain kind of return. We're interested in certain kinds of investments. And angels are people who make individual decisions. So I mentioned, gave a response to Mark's question of the things that I'm interested in. We have members that are interested in other things. And so we try to balance that. The message really is we're looking for great companies companies that can scale to be global in nature, whether it's the entrepreneurs that deliver a global business or not. They can become global businesses in the hands of somebody. We're not interested in the best idea to find co-eds at bars on Mill Avenue. We see a lot of that sort of thing. It's very small beer for very few people. And when we say no to that, people get offended. So what we're what we have, if anything... And this has been the issue, I think, for us all along, is finding the best investments and not just the, you know, the best of a poor lot. You know, If, if, you, if you've got a, a bag full of apples and they're all rotten, but one's less rotten than the rest, that's the best, but it's still not any good. We're looking for great. And there are some people that don't want to have to work at being great. They want to be kind of good. And those we turn down. And the numbers actually work this way. So I probably today touch 400 companies a year. We formally get applications from maybe a quarter of those, 100 of them. We'll invest in five or six. So that means even those of the 100 that apply, where we'll look sometimes very, very deeply at some, 95 are going to walk away unhappy. And if you've got 95 people who are turned down, they're not going to blame themselves. They're going to blame me. So there's no money here. There's no money for them. And so then the question becomes, what do we do about that, which is the right follow-on. And I, as Mark knows, I give feedback to everybody that applies to us, no matter what, how far along they get in our, our, our scrutiny. Some people accept it with good grace, and other people want to argue uh, sometimes we invite people to come back because the issues that are addressed are those of coming to the market too early so we we try to be helpful but recognize that if the hundred of the hundred companies that apply to us probably half of them are not going to exist in 3 years and uh, we're actually going to I've got I'm trying to get a, a person to do some analysis on the companies that we've looked at over the last 4 or 5 years to identify those that are still in existence versus those that are not. As well as to determine, you know, who's gotten funded that we've looked at when we've not funded them. Because there you know if there's something to learn, if, you know, we we can always be better at what we do too. So I want to make sure that we know what's going on so we can be the best investors in the Valley.
1: And for some context, so I actually did pitch to you and your group a few years ago went got went through the whole selection process it's a it's a nice simple one you know just submit a business plan and get some feedback and um, among your the selection committee which is what eight people that get together and review all the different applications and um yeah our source is certainly one of those examples of uh companies that uh you know we got to that due diligence stage but what i wanted to get some thoughts on is so for my experience after the pitch and by the way I know now that we're still too early stage for us to really um, reasonably expect any any real traction in, in trying to raise equity capital at the time. But um, apparently uh, after I pitched, there was a lot of interest among the uh, investors in the group to do some follow-up, some due diligence. But that's where things kind of fell off for me. It, it was never that we got a hard no or anything. It was just that... Uh, people expressed interest, like a dozen, apparently, um, but that there was just no real follow-up. So, I mean, what should any entrepreneur take away from that sort of experience when um, when they try to pitch for funding and they get interest, but that none that really
2: follows through? So, th- there, in, in the interval since you, you did pitch to us, we've tightened up our process a whole bunch because we are individuals making individual decisions. And if somebody's you know, interested, yeah, the, the pitch at in our events is like a first date. Get excited. Oh, this is a nice person. I want to get to know that person more. And if the pitcher is good, you know, the juices get flowing.
1: You get excited, sure. You get excited. Yeah.
2: So then it's we start into diligence, which is essentially to let cooler heads prevail So you're not just kind of excited by the 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 moment, you know. It's it's they say that Hitler was a mesmerizing speaker that he could whip up these crowds of two and three hundred thousand people to these furious emotional states, and they'd never the next day none of them would remember what said, but it was that emotional thing. And some of that goes on even, you know, not to that extent, but, you know, that goes on with good pitching at our events. So we want to create a a situation where somebody says, oh, I want to invest with my head as well as my heart. And so uh, that's what our deeper dives are and all that. But you do come to the fact that it is individuals, and some people can be excited one time and then lose interest quickly or go out of town, you know, and uh, most of our members have day jobs a lot of them are in the technology space, so it's. Well, I have to be in China for the next month. Well, time you know, you, you, time passes. So we 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 have procedures now to tighten it up. So if it if it starts to fall apart, we have a quicker no. Uh, you know, and it's, it's it, you try to manage it. If you if you think somebody's seriously interested, you don't want to c- cut it off because even a few dollars is valuable to an entrepreneur. But yeah, you know, sometimes that does happen. I'm
1: glad to hear that um, that process is being tightened up, and I'm sure it continues to get refined over time because uh, certainly from uh, the founder's perspective, um, I don't mind hearing no ever. Um, it's, it's, the issue comes when things drag out and there's just uncertainty sure. because you can't plan around that.
2: We actually have done a fair amount of, of revision on things. Our target six weeks from meeting to close and sometimes they don't exactly make it but that's because of the exigencies of some things happening you know some people are out of town that need to make have conversations or whatever or the lawyers take a little longer time to do the documents but yeah it it's, this is this is one where delay is fatal
1: you've been managing this group ATI formerly ATIF uh, for about 5 years mm-hmm. And um, I'd imagine that's quite the responsibility that's placed on you, is that you have to wrangle all the different schedules and personalities of a bunch of high net worth people, some of which might be a little eccentric, who knows. Um, What would be some of the advice that you would give to whoever your successor might be whenever that happens, if it ever happens, to help make sure that, Uh, you can have a group like that be as cohesive as possible and to be able to provide as much value for the entrepreneurs that come for advice and for
2: funding. Well, there will be a successor at some point. I mean, we're trying to build this so that it's not just dependent upon one person. Uh, then, Then you don't have a staying or, you know, a lasting organization. And I think this is far too important in our community for it to disappear when I leave town or whatever. So, Mostly, it's get an assistant. <laughs> Great advice. This is uh, this is an entrepreneurial activity too, and it's like being an you know being a, a very small organization. Everybody does everything. So before we started, we were talking about the how much more time it takes to even to produce a program like this, and how much effort there is, and and everything takes more time, and so you have to triage a lot of what you do. I, I find I. In this, it's 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 all retail actually. It's it's individual relationships. I do a lot of triaging. Uh, I have a list of about 150 people. I counted the other day of people I owe meetings to, and so when you've got that kind of backlog, you have to find you know, allow that people will be unhappy with you because you've not made them their priority, even though they are a priority. It's just things are more immediate.
1: Well, I'm glad you made us one of those priorities right. uh, that <laughs> definitely uh, helps us out.
0: Well, Jim, one of the things I've noticed too is that this parallels nicely too with companies. If a company's identity is very dependent on their CEO, and I've seen a lot of companies where the CEO is, is everywhere, and the success of that company is very dependent on that person, and that person is really the face of the business, if that person left... The company would be in a lot of trouble. Does that ever come into play when you look at businesses? Is that a red flag?
2: It's a real critical issue. Uh, well, you know, when we don't invest in, in an individual, so somebody's got a great idea, might be the might truly be the greatest idea ever. We're not going to invest in. We we require a minimum of two people to be a business. The dis, yeah, so the little mantra I use is. Coming up with something out of nothing is a creative act that not everybody has. In fact, it's a very scarce capability. People that have that ability rarely are bureaucrats. So starting a business from an idea that one person has and building a team of five or six collaborators where it's just about everybody's equal except one's more equal than the rest is pretty easy for an entrepreneur to do. But managing ten people or twenty people, let alone a hundred or a thousand, entirely different things. You know, if you're if you're truly a creator, you want to know everybody, but that works with you by your, their first names. You can't do that when you've got a thousand people working for you. So there are different skills at different scales, and so we pay a lot of attention to that, and we pay a lot of attention to who is the team and what's the team interaction at the very beginning we looked at a company that was pretty interesting technology was interesting the space was hot there was a team there were six or seven people but there was i and everybody else and we chose not to invest in the company because in the ceo's mind it was he was the business and we don't invest in one person because yeah if you some, if that person goes away gets run over by a bus or has you know, gets into a period of bad decision making you're sunk
1: is it ever the sort of situation where you understand and acknowledge that the CEO is really front and center for the business, but at the same time you, you or other members of, uh, of ATI still like the business? Is it the kind of thing ever where you'll invest, but because of that sort of factor and hence increased risk that you just take a cut on the valuation?
2: I was at the uh, National Convention of Angel Groups, uh, Six weeks ago, there were probably 700 people there representing 400 angel groups. And the general theme, which wasn't designed, was the observation that you bet on the jockey, you don't bet on the horse. If the management team, and it starts with the CEO, but if the management team isn't the one to run the business, stay away from it. Because no technology around is going to make up for that. So, if the CEO is a solo practitioner with, you know, that person's Snow White and they got a lot of dwarves around that person, not a good situation. And so you can't solve that with valuation because that's the formula for failure.
1: Before we get to the executive insight round, I I just wanted to get some quick stats about ATI just for our audience's benefit. So, um, how many members?
2: We are now at 87.
1: Eighty-seven, and what sorts of uh, specific focus areas? Maybe the top three uh, technology areas. um, What are those three that that have the biggest best chance of getting funded?
2: Uh, Phoenix is a uh, um, in new technologies is is very much a software hub. So our portfolio is more software, software as a service weighted than anything else. We do some sensors and. and, uh, uh, semiconductors a variety of ways. And I think with the Internet of Things, we're going to see a lot more combination of software and objects together, and that's pretty exciting. Uh, it falls off after that. We, we've, we did not have any real capability in life sciences until a couple of years ago, and we've been adding uh, deliberately to that because there is a life science set of initiatives in Arizona and particularly in in the metro Phoenix area that's substantial and while it's still very much in its infant stage, it's going to be important. And so we want to be part of that at the right time. And you need people that know what they're doing because investing in something that may take a billion dollars and 15 years uh, is very different from software as a service that you're going to be out in three.
1: What are the normal funding amounts that a typical
2: uh, investment will comprise of i mean i want to give you one other sort of parameter yeah. i the way i characterize it, we invest in businesses so that means there is a team that means there is a prototype that's been done and put in the hands of customers or proto proto customers you know if it's something complicated like your business mark it was one customer before the customer you know it was too early for us Uh, If it's a consumer product, a SaaS opportunity, it's got to be probably at least a 1,000 people that are using it. Uh, And we need to be able to talk to the potential customers. We're looking for that validation that there is a need and the solution is not just theoretically good enough, but people are saying, you know, maybe with some tweaking, yeah, I'm, I'm a likely buyer. So with that, if you divide up what, uh, the sort of uses of funds are. I'd say it's typically two-thirds or three-quarters for marketing and sales and a quarter or a third for continued product improvement. So the basics of the product are done. Now, it's different with, like, you know, if you're doing a medical device or a, a diagnostic, those, those don't work exactly right. But, but if you think about it in software, it's you've got something that, that that's, you're showing people. You're, you're at least at a minimum viable product that's in somebody else's hands. Uh, Don't have to have revenue. Uh, But typically in those settings, uh, entrepreneurs are looking for at least a half a million dollars and up to, say, $2 million. Uh, Probably hovers between three quarters and a million and a quarter. Uh, Our mean investment is about $350,000, so we're not doing the whole round, which means that we work with others, and that's where our relationship with Desert Angels comes into play. We do a lot of deals with them. Uh, We syndicate with other angel groups. We talk to individual investors in town that may write their own larger checks to collaborate on transactions. Uh, Because if a company needs a million dollars, it needs a million dollars. They can't get it from us. We're going to work real hard to get them the rest.
1: And because our topic for today is valuation, what's the range of valuations that are typical for deals that get done by ATI?
2: We would like the pre... No. Valuation before our money goes in, it's called pre-money valuation. After our money goes in, it's post-money, so it's pre plus our money. Uh, Pre-money valuations, we like things that are between, say, two and a half and five. We are seeing, we're doing deals that are north of five, six, seven, sometimes eight. Those are pretty well-developed businesses. And obviously, the further along the business is, the higher the valuation is.
1: Well, if anyone ever comes to you and says, uh, you know, gives you the business about uh, being unfair with evaluations or the investment dollars, just tell them to listen to this interview. Perfect. And, <laughs> and uh, so that's the whole point of, of, of putting these on uh, online. Um, so, Hillary, any, any last questions for Jim here before we jump into our final segment?
0: No, I don't. But, Jim, this has been really valuable. Thank you.
1: Um, okay. So, yes, time for our executive insight. Around jim so uh so the whole point of this is uh it's just it's five questions in this case of just um quick answer quick response um and just yeah say whatever comes to mind first question here is what is a t- hidden talent that you have a, hit, a real hidden
2: talent my spanish isn't too bad
1: give us the same example do you know i mean uh I, I,
0: a talent beyond <laughs> that <laughs> Ooh. can you juggle
2: no no i i i, I can fall down pretty well <laughs>
1: well i guess knowing spanish might help for uh any any entrepreneurs from down south who knows uh okay so uh so jim next question when you fill out forms for going to the doctor or dentist there's that line that says occupation what do you write on that line consultant how do you let off steam
2: Oh, I sing along to Bruce Springsteen.
1: Well, it's definitely a unique way to do so. Uh, what's In the car,
2: loudly. <laughs> loudly, okay.
1: <laughs> um, do you sing well? No. Okay, you just, yeah. You, you don't want to sing for you us? let out that scene. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: what's the first job you ever had? Oh, the very first job was I was at that newspaper route. The more interesting real job I had was working for, let's see. No, first then I then I my first union job was I worked in a grocery store, when I was fourteen, and then my first factory jobs I worked for my dad who was an entrepreneur mm-hmm. doing mindless work, uh, which was the lesson. Because I was lousy at the mindless work, and my dad said, "Yes, that's why you're going to college."
1: Okay, your dad was an entrepreneur, so does that run in your blood? Is that I mean? Is that was that your inspiration
2: for what you do today? No, because oh. actually I, re, I, I I think. Uh, Ultimately, it was I understood the world, but initially I went to work for some of the biggest organizations in the country because I thought I wanted to be in a large organization, and I realized that no, I was far too independent for that. But it took a while.
1: Yeah, I mean, I read when we're doing some research for this. So you started off at, at Chase. So you have a finance background, and, and so you worked for for Chase and a few other big places. But eventually, got to that you know that C level role when we plugged into a number of different companies there. What's your favorite idiom or expression?
2: I think probably when I say, that's cool. Because I don't say it all that often. But when I think something's really cool, it, it probably is.
0: So if you're investing to Jim and you hear, that's cool, that's a really good that's sign. That's a very
2: good sign. <laughs> all right,
1: well, I'm I'm going to keep that in mind for myself when, <laughs> when, whenever we talk in, uh, in person. Um, Okay, so, uh, so yes, that does it for our executive insight round. So uh, thank you, Jim, for that. That will cap the show off here with um, an opportunity for you to plug ATI, just you know, one or two uh, statements about what you might want people to know about it and maybe how to apply and, and do any other sorts of things.
2: Okay, well, that's great. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. This has been fun. And it's, what we do, I think, is important. We intend to be a real participant in our economic landscape, in our technology landscape. We are absolutely open for business. We're looking for investment opportunities. That's why we exist. So our front door is open. We don't require even a warm introduction like a VC fund so people can apply to us cold, and we'll give that application a serious look. It's unlike a lot of things. It's like the Arizona Innovation Challenge. You don't have to come intermediated, but... Uh, we're serious about this. Uh, applications are easy. It's uh, There's a tab on our website. Our website's called com, And there's a tab for entrepreneurs and a sub-tab on how to apply to us. And it just sort of walks you through the process. And everybody that fills out the forms gets a response. And we're looking for opportunities. You're
1: open for business. We Very are. good.
0: I like that. So, Jim, thank you for your valuable insight. And thank you to our listeners for uh, staying tuned and uh, just a reminder to follow us on Twitter at Startups A to Z um, on Facebook and our website. Thanks again.
1: Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me.